Research tells us that mothers who abuse cocaine are less responsive to their babies. Linda Mays wants to know exactly why and what we can do about it. This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs and Communications talking with Dr. Mays about her research into the neural circuitry of motherhood. I can remember when we were trying to get my son to sleep through the night. To not pick him up when he was crying was just every molecule in my body wanted to go do that. What was happening in my brain? (laughs) Well, it's a good question. I wish we could tell you actually directly, specifically what was happening in your brain. Uh, We're not there yet. Yeah. But the last sort of 10 years has been just a remarkable period of time of understanding that relationships, relationships with our children are extraordinarily rewarding if all goes well. Mm -hmm. But even more profoundly, perhaps, is that we use those same reward centers of the brain that we use for other rewards are involved in relationships and learning about our children and our babies. And that there's great individual differences. Mm Mm-hmm in how those centers of the brain, if you will, turn on or activate in response to infant signals or cues. But it's that experience that I think that every parent has. You say that every soul of your being wanted to pick him up. Right. Well, in a sense, um, you, your brain is working differently. Um, every parent always says that, you know, I don't know what happened after my baby was born. I just was not only the same person, not the same person, right. but my brain didn't work the same way. Right. Well, you are very tuned at that moment to what's going on with your son, what's going on in his mind, to his distress, how you can help him. And it seems that we have evolved a neural circuitry that we really take from other things, the circuitry that's involved in reward for other things, and highly tuned it, if you will, to relationships and caring for children. We attach so much emotional weight to what we think of as maternal instinct. We do. Are you saying that it's just wiring? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, And I say that very quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think we're well past in sort of in our models of development of either environment or, or biology, environment or wiring. What we are at now is very clear that certain experiences turn on certain circuits, Mm -hmm. and those circuits in turn make you more available to certain experiences, such as when your son's crying, or when your son is very interested in something, when your son is coming to you and asking questions. You know, you, again, you can have the experience of hearing people say, before my baby was born, I had it all planned out. Mm -hmm. I was going to you know, within two weeks, I was going to have the baby <laughs> in childcare. I was going to write that next grant, or I was yeah. going to do this next thing. Right. And it all went to the wind. Right. It all went to the wind in part because there was a profound reorganization at a, both a psychological and neural level of attentiveness uh, tuned in to what that child needs. Now, it's important to state that that's when all has gone well. Right. So let's talk about a situation where things aren't going so well. Right. Moms who are using cocaine. Right. What's that doing with the circuitry? So here's what we're interested in. And from, from, from one perspective, one could say, well, well of course, mm-hmm. individuals who are using drugs are struggling with many, many hardships and many things. So it's no surprise that they wouldn't be able to attend as much to their baby. 
that might be true on one level, but why it's not perhaps the best way to put it is A, it says that all drug users are the same vis-a-vis parenting. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't allow us to really ask what is it that makes it difficult for someone who is addicted to potentially attend to their infant or their toddler or their school-age child. Mm -hmm. So here's, here's the model, if you will, not to sound too academic, but the model that we're actually working on. And that is that known now for two decades that drug abuse or addiction is about a dysregulation of these reward circuits in the brain that we're going after things when we're addicted to something, we're going after that thing that we're addicted to, whether it's drugs, whether it's tobacco, whether it's caffeine, we're going after that um, in a habitual way. Mm-hmm. That it's what, we, And if we don't have it, we feel very uneasy, we feel very anxious. And I say we because if you think about it, addictive processes are possible for all of us. We are, in this case, talking about individuals who are severely addicted to cocaine or other drugs, but this kind of process is possible for all of us. And then in a sense, that habitual turning to that, whatever it is, is stress relieving. Mm -hmm. And when you don't have it, you're feeling very stressed and you're more permeable to stress. So what is it? about early parenting, we talk all the time about the wonderful things, you know, holding your baby and smiling at your baby. But the other thing about early parenting with a newborn is it's pretty stressful. It's constant and you don't sleep very well. It's stressful. You don't always know why the baby's crying. Crying can actually be extraordinarily stressful Mm -hmm. when you first hear it because what does this baby need? Is the baby in pain? Is this something I've done? Uh, Is the baby hungry? But if you have this dysregulated reward circuit, and what when you feel stressed, what you feel the need to turn to is that substance, behavior, or whatever that mm-hmm. you have in a habitual way relieves the stress, then your baby's crying is just like other stressors in your environment. So your move to go to cocaine as opposed to go to the baby. Your move to do whatever your habitual addictive behavior is. In this case, we're using cocaine as an example. Mm-hmm. That if you will, this is too metaphoric a way to speak about it, but for the purposes of metaphor, the drug, if you will, is sitting on that reward circuitry that in if all had gone well, the baby would be really right. sitting there. And so the drug is more preoccupying in that sense, than the baby. Now, to find out more about this, you sort of made yourself a window into the brains of young women. Can you talk a little bit about the methodology you used? We hope it's a window. (laughs) Um, But one of the two things that we're looking at is we're looking at how parents, both parents who are struggling with addiction and parents who are not, respond um, to to a baby's cry and also to the visual cues to a baby's facial emotional expressions. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at that using methods that, if you will, interrogate the brain at the moment that they see those or hear those stimuli. So one is functional imaging. So parents are in the magnet and listening to baby cries and looking at baby pictures. And the others we're also using uh, what's called high-density EEG, which is an electroencephalogram that looks at brain brain electrical activity at the moment someone sees those images or hears that cry. 
I will be the first to admit that that's not the same as midnight at night and your baby's crying and you're mm-hmm. all alone. But we're trying to, as best we can, dissect out those key, what we sometimes call salient infant cues that all adults are tuned into. You can't probably walk past a crying baby and you can't, most adults will turn to a, a smiling baby. Right. So they're very, very salient. Right. So we're trying to dissect what the brain does with those um, in new parents, parents who have just delivered at two weeks and then at six months postpartum. Some earlier work I've done with other colleagues at the Child Study Center, those, that particular window of time is a time it appears that these circuits um, if reorganize, if you will, mm-hmm. and, and become, those cues become very, very salient. And that, that reorganization happens quite rapidly for new parents and then comes back online very quickly for experienced parents. What we don't know yet, and this is what we're studying, mm-hmm. is the individual differences for substance-using parents. So if you find, for example, that a baby's cry is, less, is more stressful and less rewarding, and let's, we'll, we'll poll for a second why cry might be rewarding. Uh, if you find that that's true for substance-using parents, um, on average, mm-hmm. then that becomes an intervention point. I see. And let, let me let me um, also underline this. It's it's often been discussed that for adults who are parents who are struggling with addiction, the best treatment is to get them off their drug, and then they'll be able to parent better. Right. One argument we're making is actually that the intervention implications of this model is to increase the salience of their baby to increase their, the salience of caring for their baby, and that that will actually, in turn, also make the drug less rewarding. So, so the baby could help you exactly. get clean, as opposed to be a stressor that might actually exactly. be more difficult. Exactly. So that's the model that we're sort of, that we, not a sort of, that we are working with. To go back just a moment, why would the cry be rewarding? Yeah. Well, for most most of us as adults, there, there's, there's the, that initial experience of a baby cry being very stressful. But we have the capacity, in a way, to think of ourselves and the infant five, ten minutes down the road, and that how nice it will be when we are successful at crying, at care, helping the baby stop crying, mm-hmm. and how nice it will be for the baby to feel comforted. So there is a rewarding element to crime. And do we know if it's harder to see that five, ten minutes down the road if you're compromised by substance abuse? We know from not necessarily from work about parenting and substance abuse. We know from other work that generally individual, this is a real important generally, mm-hmm. individuals who are addicted have more trouble predicting to the future, more trouble seeing consequences that would go forward of what one might do now. And so then this is an extrapolation to say that that might carry over to parenting as well. Wow, I can imagine you've had a colicky baby crying for an hour and you can't see a future. That would be... That would be very stressful. And so then the other thing that that gets into the clinical implications is to think what would happen, what would be the way that you could deal with that stress. Mm-hmm. So we've, all, we've already suggested one, which is you turn to your drug mm-hmm. and you leave your baby, which 
repeated time after time becomes a situation of neglect. Another way, of course, is to make the baby stop crying so that you can do whatever it is that helps you feel less stressed, Mm -hmm. which potentially leads to situations of abuse. Not intentionally, not out of necessarily hateful feelings, but out of this mechanism of how do I get myself in a less stressed state. So is the hope that understanding these processes better will lead to a behavioral intervention or even some sort of pharmacological intervention that would Certainly a get behavioral intervention. It? Certainly a behavioral intervention. Um, and, and reconceptualizing, well not re, but conceptualizing both addiction as a stress disorder, mm-hmm. which is a large part of the, the consortium on stress at Yale that many, a number of us, but led by Rajita Sinha, mm-hmm. are thinking about. So reconceptualizing stress or addiction as a stress disorder and thinking about how parenting is a stress and if you in turn have difficulties dealing with stress, how parenting just adds at both a psychological and biological level to that does beg the question of then behavioral interventions, Mm -hmm. potentially behavioral plus pharmacological learning strategies such as mindfulness, that there are other ways to deal with your stress, uh, a a host of possibilities. And we talked about abuse, which would obviously be the most severe consequence, but but talk a little bit about what it does to a very young infant to have a mom who just has trouble attaching that way. Okay. Um, So, so I can, we can, we can move several different languages on that, or several different kind of perspectives. One, of course, is what we just said, that, that from a sheer physical care point of view, um, if your mom is because of her addiction, because of her profound depression, any range of possibilities, mm-hmm. and your dad, too. I mean, we're, when we don't want to just make this gender specific. Right. But if they're having real trouble um, attending to you or your needs, um, that just their, their, their physical possibilities are you don't grow as well as a baby. Uh, so you, you just, there's physical kind of neglect. Mm-hmm. The other way to think about it, though, um, is how do young babies over time learn to give voice to their own feelings and their own needs? Interacting with mom and dad. Exactly. And how does that actually happen, though? I mean, that's really the question, is how Mm -hmm. does that really transmit? And so one other whole line of work, partly going on in our lab and also with our colleagues, is that when parents have the ability to reflect on what's going on in their baby's mind as separate from what's going on in their mind, so a very simple example is you're not hungry, mm-hmm. but your baby's crying, and you think, oh, right, yeah, I mean, he, he needs to eat every three hours, so he must be really feeling pretty hungry. That's an incredibly simple example of the phenomenon I just talked about. But that, And so you go to your baby in that very simple example and say, you are hungry. Mm-hmm. You know, you, 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 it, was, it was just a little while ago, and you, you are such a growing boy. You, you, you get hungry quickly. So goes the theory that over time, that builds up a language for the baby. Oh, when I'm feeling this way, I'm feeling hungry. 
Now that's a simple example. That's not more complex emotions, but it applies to that as well. We have a range, we actually have some interventions we're doing called Minding the Baby, where we help parents develop, if you will, that language. Mm-hmm. If you're substance using or you're struggling with addiction, you yourself are struggling with trying to understand your own states. Mm-hmm. And to differentiate your own sort of, you know, I'm feeling sort of this gnawing, whatever, oh, is that, do I need the drug? Do I, you are struggling yourself. So it's extraordinarily difficult to do that for another person. The other way to think about it, the third way to think about it, is doing this, lending this sort of language, This because none of this happens without, when you do that little example I said with your baby, you don't just do that verbally. Mm-hmm. You pick the baby up, you look at the baby, you stroke the baby, you do a range of things. All of that goes then into the real question of how does how does physical care like that and verbal care get into the body, get into the brain? And there's some really interesting and exciting work going on that's that's quite translational, that's from the basic animal to human and back. Mm-hmm that suggest that these early sorts of caregiving moments are actually shaping these same stress regulatory systems that we're talking about. Wow. That they're actually shaping the threshold of permeability to stress, um, and that is happening at a molecular level, potentially at a genetic level, and at a, at a brain level. Oh, and that gets into a whole other body of work. but. But what it suggests is that these early caregiving moments are not just nice. They are actually, if you will, building a brain. They're vital. They're, they're vital. They're building a baby. They're building a brain. And they're building an adult who then, who may be just three months, but will become an adult right. and will become a parent. And they're building that adult's ability to respond to stress, to self-regulate, et cetera. Now, you began this particular project Mm -hmm. with a $150,000 pilot grant from Mm -hmm. the Yale Center for Clinical Investigation. Tell me about why you looked to YCCI for support. First to say that we're extraordinarily grateful to YCCI for that support because it really made possible the launching of a larger grant. Um, And why to look for YCCI is um, really two reasons. There could be more than two, but there's at mm-hmm. least these two that are, are really, really prominent. The first is that, as you might could hear, um, this is really an area of work that is translational in the sense that it draws on, we're taking basic animal or preclinical models of stress and addiction and moving them to the human model and trying to figure out how it would look in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very clinical investigation, but it really draws on this kind of collaborative piece. This, the related reason, though, is it is a clinical investigation, and it's a, an investigation in a group of, of individuals who parenting has not always been studied. Uh, addiction, treatments, the effect Mm. of addiction on brain, but not really the effect of addiction on the capacity to care for another. So that makes it a slightly, more than slightly, different area of of work that 
pulls on multiple disciplines, but it's not quite mainstream National Institutes on Drug Abuse. So you needed to get a little you need something, some something before data. you went on. Exactly. And to say that this is feasible. Yeah. This seems to work. This this has a line of implications both for child development as well as adult substance abuse. So the YCCI grant really launched our ability then to put together what was called a, what's called a program project grant mm-hmm. where we bring in basic animal models. This human study I talked about, we're imaging uh, mothers. Other colleagues in the program project are imaging babies. Um, and then we have, uh, with colleagues at University of North Carolina who are in the program project, animal models of cocaine addiction as well. So how much total external funding has it led to? Do you know offhand? Uh, we have we have an R01 uh, with colleagues in Baylor, and we have this program project in actual dollar numbers. Gosh, I'm terrible about dollar numbers. <laughs> uh, let's see. I believe the program project is about five to six million, and the grant with Baylor is a five-year grant at about four hundred thousand across both sites. Okay, or, so the ROI has been pretty good. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right, right. Is that the return on investment? Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> right. Well, in, in imaging, we say that that's the region of interest. So. Uh, okay. <laughs> Great. So what's the next step going forward? What's the next thing that you're looking at? Uh, the next steps going forward are are, are several. Um, so um, we take it piecemeal. So So the grant, for example, with our colleagues with Baylor, takes this same imaging and cry paradigm and we move it a little bit forward because, as I said, that's really not like being with your baby at right. midnight. Right. It's very passive. You have to sit there and listen. So we're, we're changing the paradigms to be a little bit more involved so that we can actually begin to look at things like response time, individual differences, and that sort of thing. So we're moving those basic um, brain, as I call them, brain interrogation paradigms forward. Mm-hmm. We're adding some genetic components. Uh, so the question, and those will require much larger samples, but the question is, are there also, we know there's individual differences in susceptibility to addiction, and those seem to be some, some conveyed genetically. Mm-hmm. Are those same genetic issues relevant to individual differences in the impact of addiction on parenting? Then the other line of work that we're Started, we, we are starting now with pilot that will then go into a grant is we have something called a simulated baby. <laughs> and the simulated baby is essentially a computer baby but looks very much like a baby. Uh-huh. Um, and so we can control the cry. And that allows us in some still somewhat artificial way but allows us to really look at just how parents mm-hmm. behave. Because once you've got a live baby and a live parent, you've got a diet. Yeah. And and the baby's behavior impacts the parent and vice versa, and so it's a, it's a loop. And that's probably the purest and best way to study these things. But the simulated baby allows us to have a baby we can control mm-hmm. and look at individual differences in parenting. And so we're doing that as well. The whole goal of all of this um, is actually to really move it to intervention to really refine interventions for substance-using parents who are also adults and struggling to care for their children. Because I would also say that, uh, that, it's, that it is extraordinarily rare for a parent 
to not want to be a good parent. Right. They really want to do that. But there may be many, many things, and this particular issue that we're talking about is one of them that gets in the way. So if we can, we can develop interventions that really focus on that, then we can help many parents achieve that which they wish to do, um, which is to take care of their children. Thank you. That was Linda Mays, the Arnold Gazelle Professor in the Yale Child Study Center, talking about her work on maternal attachment.